Well, this time I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. Today we're going to focus our attention upon the institution of marriage as we see it recorded here at the, the latter half, or in the latter half of Genesis chapter 2. So Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. Please pay careful attention, for this is God's holy and inspired word given to us this morning. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh, of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, last week we considered what it means for man to be made in the image and likeness of God. More specifically, we considered how man is made in the image of the working, judging, and resting God. That's what God does, is it not? In Genesis 1 and 2, he works, he judges, he rests. He works in the six days of creation, and then at the conclusion of that sixth day of creation, God judges his work. He evaluates his work and deems his work to be exceedingly good. And then upon the perfect completion of that work, he enters his eternal seventh day Sabbath rest. Likewise then, man made in the image of this working, judging, resting God is also called to work as God worked. Man is given a commission, a commission to perform And this work was meant to be evaluated or judged by God. Consequently, then, upon the perfect completion of that work, man would be given the invitation, the right to enter God's seventh day Sabbath rest. Well, one aspect or one part 
of this image of God commission or this work that we are given by virtue of uh, being made in the likeness of God is this call to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth within the institution of marriage. Just as God filled this earth with creatures and called upon these creatures to be fruitful and multiply, we, we as those who bear the image of God, are called to be fruitful and multiply. Just as God was intentional about pursuing a covenantal relationship with his image bearers, likewise we are called to pursue that relationship which most closely approximates God's covenantal relationship with his image bearers in the institution of marriage. This morning, then, I'd like us to reflect upon the goodness of marriage, the goodness of this institution that God ordained at uh, at the beginning. Now, this topic is relevant for us to consider as we live in the midst of a culture that has redefined marriage as not only existing between those who are biologically opposite to one another, but also as existing between those who are biologically the same as one another. We live in the midst of a culture that has redefined marriage as no longer ordinarily being a permanent lifelong commitment, but as simply a non-binding agreement that really can be terminated at any point in time. And so this morning, we are going to consider the goodness, the goodness of this institution that God established. We also are going to consider the goodness of singleness. Scripture affirms both. Scripture says that it is not good for man to be alone, but Scripture also says to the unmarried and single, it is good to remain as, as you are. So we, we have to affirm both. Scripture affirms both. We then will consider the goodness of marriage, the goodness of being single, and then last of all, we will consider the ultimate good that marriage signifies, which we all are called to participate in. We will consider the ultimate good that marriage signifies that we all are called to participate in. So first, the goodness of marriage. The goodness of marriage. If you look with me in your Bibles in verse 18, we see that God says, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, if you were to state this positively, what is God saying? God's saying that it is good for man to have a helper. It is good for man to be married. This is what, what, what God is saying. Now, why? Why is it good to be married? Why is it good to have a helper? Well, the goodness of marriage is inseparable from God's purposes for marriage. The goodness of marriage is inseparable from God's purposes for marriage. Marriage is good because God desires to accomplish certain purposes through this institution. Marriage is good because God desires to accomplish certain purposes through this institution. Consequently, then, I'd like us to reflect here upon the purposes of marriage. And as we reflect upon the purposes of marriage, we will be able to see why marriage is such a good 
institution. Why? It's good for man to have a helper fit for him. Now, these purposes are, are really purposes that, that our historic Reformed confessions and even our historic liturgical forms that speak about marriage all, all address. So first, we see that God instituted marriage to provide mutual help between husband and wife. God provided or instituted marriage for the purpose of providing mutual help between husband and wife. Again, if you were to look with me in verse 18, we see that God says, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Or literally, you could say, I will make him, I will make him a helper like his opposite. I will make him a helper like his opposite. And so what is marriage? Well, marriage is the union of those who are different. Marriage is the union of those who are opposite, biologically opposite, according to God's own design here. I will make him a helper like his opposite. This makes sense, right? If you desire to procreate, you need a helper like your opposite. If you desire to have a healthy context in which to raise children, you need a helper like your opposite. Men have qualities that, that women don't have. Women have qualities that men don't have. And so when you do have a helper, when you are married to someone who is your opposite, you are sharpened and better equipped to fulfill the callings that God has given to you. God gave to Adam a helper like his opposite. It's interesting, when you fast forward in the book of Genesis, you see that Sodom and Gomorrah's great sin is their aversion to the other. And their aversion to the other is manifested in two particular vices, homosexuality and inhospitality. In both respects, they have an aversion to those who are their opposite, an aversion to the other. Well, the fact that God gave Eve to Adam as a helper assumes that there is a task. There is a task that Adam and Eve, marriage, is meant to fulfill. Something that those who are single cannot fulfill on their own. And what is that task? Well, of course, it's to be fruitful and multiply and fulfill the earth within the institution of marriage. And so God not only instituted marriage for mutual help between husband and wife, but God also instituted marriage to provide a healthy context in which to have and raise children for the good and growth of society and the church. So God instituted marriage to be a healthy context to have and raise children for the good and growth of society and the church. And so we see that the purpose of marriage to provide a healthy context to have and raise children is good for society. It's good for society. This creation mandate to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth is, is reasserted in the Noahic covenant in Genesis 9. This reminds us that marriage is not an institution that the church owns. 
unbelievers are just as married as those who, who profess faith in Jesus Christ. The Noahic covenant, apart from the original covenant of works, is the only covenant that's made with all people. Indeed, it's made with all creation. The Noahic covenant undergirds life outside the church. The Noahic covenant is the theological basis for every common, ordinary institution in our present society. And so the fact that God includes this creation mandate to be fruitful and multiply within the context of marriage tells us, teaches us, that marriage is good for society. Having kids is good for society, and raising those kids within the context of the natural family is good. Good for society. So God ordained marriage for the purpose of providing a context in which to have and raise children for the good and growth of society. Well, God not only provided marriage as a context to have and raise children for the good and growth of society, but also for the good and growth of the church, the kingdom of God. And this is a really important point for us to reflect upon. And I'm about to uh, reference quite a few scripture passages. And my goal in referencing these scripture passages are not to overwhelm you, but rather for you to bask, marinate in how central of a theme this is in scripture. So God ordained Marriage for the purpose of providing a healthy context to have and raise children for the growth and good of the kingdom of God, of the church. So we see in Genesis chapter 17, 7 through 9, God comes to our great forefather in the faith, Abraham, and says, I will be a God to you and to your children for an everlasting covenant. I will be a God to you and to your children for an everlasting covenant. And he gave to Abraham the sign and seal of circumcision, which points to that everlasting promise. God has chosen to build his church through the natural family. Malachi 2.15, God speaks about marriage and says, What is the one God seeking in marriage when two become one? Well, he's seeking godly offspring. God builds his church through the natural family. Lest we think that this paradigm has been abolished with the coming of the New Testament. In Matthew 19, we, we hear that, that uh, parents are bringing their little children, even infants, to Jesus to be blessed. And the disciples are rebuking these parents and saying, what are you doing? This is Jesus of Nazareth. Doesn't he have better things to do than to bless your little babies? And Jesus rebukes the disciples. He says, no, let the little children come to me, for to such belong the kingdom of God. Infants belong to the kingdom of God. In Luke chapter 9, the disciples are arguing about who among them is the greatest. And how does Jesus respond? Well, he says, whoever receives a child receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. According to Jesus, it's really important that we receive and recognize children as a real part of our community together. That at the dawn of the new covenant, Acts chapter 2, verses 38 through 39, Peter's preaching to the Jews at Pentecost. He says, the promise, what promise? Well, that Abrahamic promise of Genesis 17, 7 through 9. The promise is for you and your children and for all those who are far off, everyone for whom the Lord calls to himself. Peter is reminding those of the new covenant 
that the free offer of the gospel is not only for the Gentiles in the new covenant, but it continues to be for you and for your children. God is continuing to build his church through the natural family. Think of 1 Corinthians 7, where Paul is speaking about mixed marriages. And he says to those who may find themselves in a mixed marriage, to be assured that their children are nevertheless holy, set apart, and distinct because of the faith of one or more believing parents. This doesn't mean that children are saved by the faith of their parents. This means that children born in a Christian home have the privilege of hearing the word of God, which is the power of God into salvation. God builds his church through the natural family. Ephesians 6 and Colossians 3, Paul addresses children in his epistles as if they're just as much members of the church as bondservants and masters, as husbands and wives, as parents. And he calls upon them to obey their parents in the Lord, which means that they belong to the Lord and his covenant. Again, God builds his church through the natural family. 2 Timothy 1, Paul is telling Timothy, he says, Timothy, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that first dwelt among your grandmother Eunice and your mother Lois, and I am sure dwells among you as well. Why is Paul so sure that the faith of Timothy's grandmother and mother now dwells in Timothy? Because God continues to build his church through the natural family. And then in 2 Timothy 3, Paul tells Timothy, don't forget from whom you were taught the sacred writings, the scriptures, namely your mother and grandmother. Why does Paul remind Timothy of this? Because Paul wants Timothy to remember that even in the new covenant, God builds his church through the natural family. And so parents, those of you who have children, you are engaged in a high and holy task as you discipline, instruct, and catechize your children. As you do these things, you are playing a part in building Christ's church, in building Christ's kingdom. Why do we have a catechism service? Why did churches of the Reformation institute catechism services? Because the churches of the Reformation recognized that as pastors and even elders catechize the youth, they are building Christ's church here on earth. And our desire for our covenant children is not only that they profess faith, not only that they come to the Lord's table, but they grow to love, to treasure the Reformed tradition. So parents, you are engaged in a high and holy task. And it's because of these convictions, these convictions that God ordained in marriage for the purpose of providing a context for having and raising children for the good and growth of the church. It's this conviction that God continues to build his church through the natural family that we baptize babies. And we do so without blushing. This is a really important part of our life together as a reformed church. You know, the baptism of of babies is not merely a trite ceremony that that we do once in our lifetime and forget. We don't do it out of superstition or tradition. We do it because it's highly symbolic of some of our most deeply held convictions. You know, imagine that you see someone wearing jewelry, maybe a ring on their right finger, a bracelet, earrings, a necklace. You might think, oh, that's nice. 
But when you see someone wearing a ring on their left ring finger, that's a categorically different piece of jewelry, is it not? It symbolizes a lot. It symbolizes a marital relationship, vows and commitments and years of life together. It possibly symbolizes children and family. A ring on your left middle finger is categorically different than any other piece of jewelry that you possess. So it is with baptism. Infant baptism represents a whole lot. Some of our deepest held convictions. It's God's sign and seal of his promises to us and to our children. Therefore, baptism represents this conviction that God instituted marriage for the purpose of having kids within that family to grow and build the church. It reflects this conviction that God builds his church in part through the means of the natural family. It's our conviction that children are an active part of our community together. That's what infant baptism represents. This is why we see in the book of Acts household baptisms. Just as there were household circumcisions in the New Covenant, there are household baptisms, which remind us that God continues to build his church through the means of the natural family. It's important for us to, 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 to realize this, especially as we, you know, we live very much in a, a Baptistic evangelical culture. You know, very few people have witnessed um, a reformed infant baptism. That's not done on tradition, that's not done on superstition, but it's done with biblical rationale. And the main difference between a reformed church and um, Baptist churches within, uh, within our current landscape is not just that one church places water in a baby and the other church doesn't. Rather, the differences are over our respective views on marriage, the family, and God's purpose for the natural family in the new covenant. For those who reject infant baptism, based on, you know, Baptistic confession of faith, they also believe that God's purposes for the natural family have expired with the coming of Christ. God used the natural family in the Old Testament to get the seed, right, Jesus Christ. But once Jesus Christ has come to this earth, then God no longer uses the natural family to build his church. And so that's the main difference, foundational difference between um, those who only baptize believers and those who baptize believers and their children. We wholeheartedly confess that the purpose of marriage, the purpose of the family, is in part to build Christ's church and kingdom and that children are a part of our community together. And so this important thing to, to, to remember as you yourselves might be wrestling with this issue, as you may be wrestling with this issue with friends and family members, it's not just about whether or not we place water on a baby. It's about our views and convictions about marriage, the family, and children. And those are very important concepts for us all to consider as we think about these issues. And so marriage is good. It's good. It's good because God ordained it for the purpose of mutual help between husband and wife. It's good because God uses marriage to provide a context to have and raise children for the good and growth of society and his kingdom here on earth. And so if marriage is so good then how can Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 say to the unmarried and widows, it is good for you to remain as you are. How can scripture say that it is good, it is not good for man to be alone, but then at the same time say, actually it is good for you to remain alone. Well, we have to remember that the image of God is a multifaceted concept. The image of God is a multifaceted concept. 
So much so that maleness does not exhaust the image of God. Femaleness does not exhaust the image of God. The tasks of being fruitful and multiplying and even being married do not exhaust the image of God. The image of God is a multifaceted concept. And so those of you who are married, those of you who have children, are able to express the image of God in very unique and profound ways. However, those of you who are single, those of you who are married and don't have kids, you also have the opportunity to express the image of God in very unique ways that those who are married with kids cannot do. Catch that? Those who are single, those who are married without kids, have the opportunity to express the image of God in ways that those who are married with kids cannot. This is precisely why, in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul is able to say that singleness is a gift. It's a gift because you have the opportunity to express the image of God in ways that those who are married with kids cannot due to their limited capacity. Think about the time, the energy that you have because you're not married, don't have kids to pursue legitimate good things to serve your neighbor and glorify God. The image of God is a multifaceted concept. Indeed, it's because of the image of God is a multifaceted concept that there also is a category for couples possibly delaying having kids for a time to pursue other legitimate image of God goods. Getting an education, paying off debt, getting into a home. There's also a category for families not choosing to have as many kids as possible because there are other legitimate of God, uh, image of God goods that they feel called to pursue that they otherwise couldn't pursue. Some families may desire to have as many kids as they possibly can, and that may be what the Lord is calling that family to do. So we have to remember, remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 17, as he speaks about singleness and marriage. He says, only let each person lead the life the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. We have to discern as individuals, as couples, what image of God goods God is calling us to pursue. And this likely will look different between family and family, individual and individual. Now, we need to be careful, especially as a a Reformed congregation, we need to be careful that we don't so emphasize the goodness of marriage, the goodness of the natural family. And those things are good. But we have to be careful that we don't so emphasize the goodness of marriage and the natural family that we unintentionally make those who are single or don't have children feel as if they somehow possess less than the full image of God. We need to be as balanced as Scripture is. Scripture is able to wholeheartedly confess and profess that that marriage is good, but Scripture also is able to affirm that singleness is good. We have to be as balanced as Scripture is. And so we would do well to consider, to consider our own present context, our own season of life, and consider what goods God is calling us to pursue in this season of life. Those of you who are married with kids, those of you who are married without kids, those of you who are single, 
we all are, all are called to embrace the inherent goodness of our present calling. And so do you embrace the goodness of your present singleness, the goodness of your present life as a married without kids, the goodness of your present life married with kids? We all are called to embrace the goodness of our present season of life. Now, this doesn't mean that we can't pursue a different set of circumstances. If you're single, it doesn't mean that you can't pursue the gift of marriage, or if you're married without kids, you can't pursue the gift of having children. But we all are called to be content and embrace the inherent goodness of our present season and callings of life. Again, whether you are single, whether you are married, whether you are married with kids. Those of us who believe, no matter what station of life you find yourself in, those of us who believe are all called to experience and participate in what marriage ultimately points to, namely union with Christ. We all, by faith, can possess what, what marriage ultimately points to, whether you're single or married, with or without kids. Just think, Again, boys and girls of our first catechism question and answer. That we belong body and soul, life and in death to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And within this union, we have the blessing of having a God who watches over us in such a way that not a hair can fall from our heads. We have the blessing of receiving the forgiveness of our sins. We have the blessing of receiving the Holy Spirit who assures us, comforts us, and shall abide with us forever. We have the blessing of being united, body and soul, to Jesus Christ, who is seated at the right hand of the Father. In a few moments, we will have the privilege of partaking together of the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper is a time in which we partake of, yes, ordinary bread and wine. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, our hearts are lifted up to Christ, who is at the right hand of God. And we experience union and communion with him. And so, in this meal, we experience in a very tangible way what marriage ultimately points to. Union and communion with our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray.